Hi, I'm Tim Worthington and welcome to the Lots of Familiar Selection Box where I asked a couple of guests to come on and talk about a TV Christmas special they're very fond of and never seems to get mentioned, so let's just get straight on with it. Hello, I've brought with me the Rutland Weekend Television Christmas Special 1975. Well, that's a name that's probably not going to mean much to a lot of people listening, although, you know, obviously it does to me. So what was Rutland Weekend Television? Rutland Weekend Television was essentially, at its heart, a Monty Python spin-off. It was the programme that Eric Idle left Monty Python to go off and do. It was a very low-budget sketch show that ran for two series, 1975-1976. No audience, tiny studio... Eric Idle sketches, Neil Innes songs. It's very obscure now because it's never been given any kind of video or DVD release or repeat or anything like that, really. It's only becoming a little bit more known now because kind of bootlegs and things have leaked and they're the nearest thing anyone's going to get to see it these days. But there was a Christmas special in 1975 that for a long time was the most elusive episode of it. It wasn't traded like the other ones were. And in many ways, this is the most famous episode because it's basically known as the George Harrison one. Unfortunately for the likes of us, the big joke at the end is kind of spoiled by the fact that it was something by necessity. You had heard what happened a long time before you ever got to see it. And I like to wonder what the reaction would have been of people watching it at the time. I'll let you explain what happens. Yeah, so essentially the episode opens, you kind of get a bit of an intro. Uh, Eric Idle, weirdly, he revives a character that he did on Monty Python. I think the only time he's ever done that in that show, he does his MC character in the gold span jacket and he's announced that George Harrison will be on and then George Harrison keeps popping up in person saying he wants to do a pirate sketch that doesn't exist and then he's kind of commiserating to Neil Innes about how he wants to do a pirate sketch but Neil Innes is saying well I'm not writing you a pirate sketch and then the very end the the big finale of this joke is they go finally George Harrison he comes on and it's Neil Innes' band Fatso and they're doing this, the intro to My Sweet Lord and he comes on and just when the vocal's about to start he sings a stupid song about pirates instead this is <laughs> There's very few people of our generation who have seen that before reading about it, what happens, as you just said. And that clip itself was, it was on a clip show. So the clip of that happening was available, but the build-up and the sense and the context of it was completely gone. The first time anyone really saw this was about 15 years ago when someone finally got a tape out of the archive and people started, oh, that's what, and they were all watching it. It's really strange, because Rutland Weekend Television is... It's a bit of a stretch to call it a classic. The fact is, it's it's everyone loves Monty Python, everyone loves Neil Innes, and everyone wants to see it. But there's a lot of it which just isn't very enjoyable, and it's, it can be a bit of a trial to watch at times. Other times it can be brilliant, but it, it's, it's kind of frustratingly kind of scabby, really, sometimes. It, the, the sketches are too long, there's no atmosphere because there's no audience. The music videos for the Neil Innes songs are so cheap, they're, kind of, they're not very engaging. But the Christmas special has a tiny bit more money put into it, and has the George Harrison thing, and has a couple of other bits which are like the best things they ever did. They do a spoof of Tommy in the middle of it. They do a big film night parody. He does like a kind of 
Stanley Baxter thing where he's being Tony Bilbo and Philip Jenkinson and they do a big parody of Tommy for like three minutes and it's the most impressive expensive thing that the series ever did it's the most unrepresentative thing you could ever show from it but it's absolutely fantastic we should really say actually about the fact that it looks so cheap and so cramped and you know you can see a lot of things like half finished scenery and so on was actually making a virtue with the fact that it's quite unusual commission for BBC Two and it was made by the presentation department who normally just did things like the weather and you know the continuity linking and so on but they had a weird situation where they ended up with a surplus of money which is how I think the first thing they did as a proper programme was Late Night Lineup which is a late night BBC Two arts show which the Pythons parodied a lot but then they started going yeah. to basically putting prog rock bands on in things like Disco 2 and the old Grey Whistle Test and Rutland Weekend Television was their comedy commission because Eric Idle was really closely associated with sort of the prog rock scene at that point it came out of he did a series on Radio 1 called Radio 5 which is basically a cheap radio station with dreadfully threadbare programming this is basically that on TV Yeah, and it was a perfect match because they had a very small studio where you know normally you would have somebody say and coming up later on BBC Two, oh, I can't move. The wall is in my way behind me. I have to keep my arms by my side. And no money. And what strikes me now about it, though, is the programmes they came up as, you know, sketch ideas for really cheap programming. Things like the one that always made me laugh was a documentary, Churchill's Cat. Now you would see that on the real Channel 5. <laughs> it would be two hours long. <laughs> <laughs> on, on Boxing Day. A bit like some of these sketches feel, to be honest with you. For me, all my friends are pirates and the same the BBC. I got a jolly Roger, it's a black and white and fast. So get out of your skull and crossbones and I run it off your mask. With your Yeah, I mean, it was a really worthwhile experiment to try and make a comedy program on a presentation budget. And weirdly, that kind of ethos of getting the press department to make programmes kind of continues in BBC Children's now, especially on CBeebies, where there are programmes that are kind of proper commissions that are made by the press department. There was the panto this morning, because obviously of social distancing, they've done it all on green screen, kind of like a weird playaway style thing, but, you know, with virtual backgrounds and virtual sets. And it's just the normal presentation team that have done it that experimentation in the 70s has been influential and you do see a lot of things done on virtual sets now which is kind of the same idea really you know you're making a virtue about the fact you haven't got production design you haven't got room you haven't got space you've just got people and a background it is fair to say that even all that said Rutland Weekend Television is the kind of program that needs an audience it needs proper sets it needs slightly more budget in the location stuff 
it needs more going into the music videos. It is starved of what it really needs, and I think that's a big reason why it's never really been remembered as a classic. There is also an unfortunate thing where, I mean, it is inevitable that even the most right-on people, when you look back, you know, the standards of previous decades, I don't think, can be judged against now. And, you know, the Pythons, the Goodies, the Beatles were all what you would call the forefront of liberation on various fronts. They sided with the outsiders, but even so, there's a couple of dodgy elements. And in this, I really didn't like where during the film night thing, they do an extended thing about Linda Lovelace, who obviously was known then as a star of Deep Throat, which you know, caused a big scandal, but she had quite a tragic backstory and... The bit of parodying a Linda Lovelace Film Festival just came across as a bit nasty, really, in retrospect. Unfortunately, you have to watch out for things like that when revisiting things like this. And like you say, there isn't always the top draw comic content to kind of compensate for that. You've made a really good point, actually, because I actually noticed on rewatching this, there's a lot of kind of quite misogynistic things throughout the entire episode, more than usual. In fact, nearly every scene has got Eric Idle kind of leching over a woman or shouting at a woman. You know, you've got Gwen Taylor, though, who is like one of the funniest women in like comedy history. And she does have a couple of, you know, good things to do. She gets to do an Anne Margaret impression, which is really, really good. But even then, she's still being leched over and shouted at. Her and Corinthia West, and they're just being slightly abused, really, by Eric Idle <laughs> out of control. <laughs> well, there's also a Cyril Smith joke, which I don't think anyone was expecting to be problematic in this day and age, but it really is. But it's also interesting to note that Eric Idle really didn't like Margaret Thatcher, even at this early stage. She comes in for quite a battering in a number of sketches. And there are characters named after her as well, aren't there? Unflatteringly. Yeah, well, she's all the way through to Python, really. I think the statue references in, in Python as well. There is in How to Recognise Different Parts of the Body, yeah. most notably, where her brain is in their knee. And Michael Palin is still very proud of that. But it's, it's, a, it's a very odd special, as you say. It, there are dodgy elements to it, but it is at least very Christmassy. Nearly every sketch is Christmas-themed which is not par for the course, really. If you look at a lot of... There's a lot of comedy Christmas specials that have no Christmas content in it at all, like the Morecambe and Wise ones, where they were just trying to be repeated throughout the year. It does at least try and make you feel festive, but there's an odd atmosphere about this episode particularly. Maybe it's because it was made as a special. It seems like they probably had more fun making it than it is to watch. Obviously, with George Harrison and his entourage would have been there as well. It sometimes feels like a party that you're not quite invited to. <laughs> But there are still really good things about it. It's got this where Neil Innes' testing one-two routine comes from that he did in his live shows for years and years yes. and years after that. As I say, there is, you know, the really good film night Tommy thing, which you would put in a best of if you were making a best of video, which is obviously never going to happen now, but I'm thinking it must have been considered at one point. But it's it's still nice to have, and it's, it's a really good time capsule. What's really interesting is it's from 1975, and there's quite a lot of running jokes in it about the film Jaws, which was brand new then. Well... That's another interesting angle, is that I think the George Harrison, the big joke at the end, you know, the My Sweet Lord into the Pirate song, the context has been lost that he was actually in the middle of the court case over My Sweet Lord at that point, and this was possibly, possibly him getting some of that out, having a go back. And now it's just funny segue, which, you know, goes to show sometimes topical jokes don't really stand the test of time. Yeah, and then he, he released the song this song about that court case which has Eric Idle doing a little monologue in the middle well I say monologue it's about four words but he does a bit of a spoken pepper pot thing in the middle of it so it's all part of a you know a theme 
The other interesting thing to note is you mentioned Radio 5 before. So this was Christmas 1975 this was on. Now Radio 5 had had a Christmas special in 73 and 74. This was Rutland Weekend Television in 1975 doing a special. And the year after, the way Series 2 was broadcast, it meant the last episode of Series 2 and therefore of Rutland Weekend Television was on Christmas Eve. So the idea of an annual Eric Idle Christmas special, there was actually four years where there was an Idle show on, on at Christmas. So this is probably the most famous one of that but it was a strange tradition that comedy fans of the time would have picked up on that there was a, an annual Eric Idle special and that makes it all the more strange that you know you look at this you've got Eric Idle you've got Neil Innes you've got George Harrison in this one you've got I mean we've not even mentioned the fact that the Ruttles All You Need Is Cash basically came straight out of Ruttles Weekend Television and yet for reasons we kind of alluded to it never gets remembered now it never gets talked about this episode was broadcast very shortly before they started making series 2 you know the Ruttles would have been on the bottom at this point when this episode came out you know George Harrison was there and only a few weeks later they were they were recording that Ruttle sketch on location it was it was on the shelf for a long time that second series and then there was a, you know an album and a book they really did try and make it had a big high profile repeat of series one they did really try to make it a hit but there's only so much you can do with a program that's got no budget no atmosphere very little that you can show on you know here's a clip from this and you just look at it why is it a comedy program when it's just no one laughing at it it, it was a kind of a victim of its own novelty really okay well hoping that you won't become a victim of your own novelty <laughs> Daryl is there anything Christmassy that you're up to that you want to share with everyone oh I I've been quite busy. I've, there's an audio drama out at the moment called The Barren Author with Richard O'Brien and Sophie Aldred. You might want to enjoy that over the festive period. I'll be popping up all over the place uh, on Twitter at, uh, at MacLockdown, M-A-C. Um, there's a few little podcasts I'll be popping up on, so, you know, keep all your subscription feeds and doobries. What, I don't want my own about. <laughs> so keep all your subscriptions up to date and I'm, uh, you'll be sick of me by New Year. What have you brought with you? I've brought with me, Tim, the season three Christmas episode of Community Regional Holiday Music. Had to push past the season one episode that everyone forgets and the season two episode, which is the one that everyone remembers, for this slightly weirder one, I think. And that's saying something given that the season two one is in claymation for no good reason. (laughs) So I think it got a big boost by going onto Netflix right at the start of lockdown. So suddenly people were like, oh, six series of a sitcom, I'll watch this. But it is about seven people that form a study group at a community college which is the weirdest community college that has ever existed it starts out as a fairly sort of standard sitcom in a slightly weird place and then goes very very odd places further on people tend to remember that there are standout episodes where they do something weird like the there's a halloween episode that is basically a miniature zombie film which is caused by people eating expired army issue taco meat i think is the the cause for that one there's the aforementioned christmas episode which is entirely in claymation for reasons that do make sense kind of this one is a musical episode unexpectedly that is specifically taking the mick out of glee which apparently was was filmed quite near to where they filmed community and uh, show creator dan Harmon hated it absolutely <laughs> hated it i don't know really how to start with describing the plot of this one because what if a glee club but it's invaders of the body snatchers doesn't really <laughs> well it's called regional holiday music which 
comes back to a joke that I you didn't even realise when because everyone tried to watch Glee when it was first on because it was pitched as something a bit different to what it actually was. Yeah, it was supposedly sharp, funny, and expose the fame business, and it did just degenerate into who are we doing this week? Britney Spears, brilliant! They had this obsession with regionals, and there is a running joke in this: what are regionals? Which is never explained. Tim, Tim, they're this close. <laughs> I mean, though, to be fair, it's only Pierce, the character played by Chevy Chase, that questions what regionals are. It just runs off everyone else like water off a duck's back, but he just keeps going, what are regionals? What, what are they? And no one ever tells. And it starts with the Greendale Glee Club, <laughs> basically a kind of forced out of existence, almost virtually, by the study group playing a prank on them. Well, 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 well reporting them for copyright infringement. <laughs> Season three is the one where, that, that takes to task the group's horrible codependent relationship and thinking they're better than everyone else around them and this is yet another example of that so because they find the glee club slightly annoying they report them to ascap and then they have a collective nervous breakdown and are taken to hospital they start clawing at their own faces don't forget yes. that detail uh, one of them stabs a fork into his hand as well that's the <laughs> and also the copyright notice is delivered by chang in one of his two appearances in this episode which it's worth mentioning him even though he isn't really in this episode because he is one of the best characters but also, people might have seen him recently not known who he was. Yeah, that was a baffling decision when they brought the mass Singer over here. It's like, who are we going to bring from the American one? So when the, when they did the American version of Red Dwarf and they went, we're going to take Robert Llewellyn over, it's like, well, OK, he's probably the most recognisable physically character out of all of them. We're going to do the mass Singer over here. We're going to bring Ken Jeong. Who? <laughs> who? That's all anyone said to me for weeks. Who is that? Like, oh, he's in the show that I used to watch. Like, I've never seen it. I mean, to be, to be fair, he's also quite a, a prominent character in the Hangover films, so he probably yes, does have yeah. some name brand recognition on that. I've never seen those. He's Chang, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, they kind of get coerced in this weird religious cult sort of way, which I think Jeff describes Mr. Rad, the leader of the Glee Club, as <laughs> equal parts handsome and Manson. Yes. Which <laughs> is, basically, it's the plot of the episode. They all get brainwashed one by one. On with a song that is set to appeal to them. Yes, by Taron Killam, who is best known for his his work in Saturday Night Live, who plays a really compellingly weird villain here. Yeah, he's, he's, he's quite frightening. He <laughs> genuinely is, uh, and and it's one area where the musical cues help us, especially after the first the first song where Mr. Rad convinces Arbed to to join up, and there's a little sort of minor key at the end of it that's really unsettling. The standout ones for me were Baby Boomer Santa which yes. is used to draw Peter's in where it's basically it's like somebody dropped We Didn't Start the Fire on the floor and joined it back up in the wrong order because the stuff about Santa <laughs> helped the Beatles beat McCarthy or whatever <laughs> I mean, my, my personal favourite is towards the end of the song where it lists among the baby boomers achievements are fake butter and AIDS and Twin Peaks. That is <laughs> that is the best three things that boomers came up with. And there's also Teach Me How to Understand Christmas, sung by Annie to Seduce Jeff, which is a perfect parody of all those Christmas songs that infantilise women sexually, yeah. which are really creepy. I mean, everyone talks about baby, it's cold outside. Those ones are actually, in a way, as bad, if not worse. This is proper Marilyn Monroe nonsense, isn't it? It's. I think my my favourite moment of the sequence is when Jeff just slaps some mistletoe out of her hand as she's about to put it in her mouth to eat it. Yeah. 
Miss Fofa Eaty taste good. <laughs> it's the timing of the, of the slap as well that is particularly entertaining. She gets more and more stupid as the song goes on. Yes, to the end, to the, to the end where, where Jeff says you eventually you reach a diminishing re- return on the sexiness and she says, What's the particular to understand Christmas show me how to open a box it hurts my little head when I'm lying in my bed with visions of sugar plum socks Is this a bit teach me how to understand Christmas do I trim the tree or the deer I can't keep it straight and now it's getting late where does the stocking go? Here? I can't see. What's the Christmas Eve? Is that Santa's lady? Are snowmen cold or hot? Won't you be my daddy? I'm a silly Christmas baby. Tell me what to deck. Because <laughs> I forgot. Annie. Blaine oh. Oh. Hoodie Understandy Christmas. Mistletoe for Edie tastes good? You smarty, me dumb, help witty, have fun! Boopy doopy doop, boop sex. Look, eventually you hit a point of diminishing returns on the sexiness. What's a diminishing? After the final song, there is only Britta Perry left, who runs into Jeff round the corner, who turns and points at her and goes, ah, in a pack. Yeah, we're definitely doing Invasion of the Body Snatchers, is my point here. It's that bit with Donald Sutherland at the end, it's that. And the way they get out of it is quite interesting as well, because it isn't just a plot device. It's half based on the fact that Britta is talentless and ruins the show. <laughs> a recurring joke, but also, I mean, something never gets talked about enough is Abed. Basically, his character is he's quite severely autistic. It isn't really spelled out, but the reason he gets involved with the Glee thing is it isn't that he's brainwashed, it's his new obsession. When he realises Britta is being left out and that doesn't fit with his vision, he then turns against the Glee club and tries to sabotage it. And the sensitivity with which community handled the idea of a character being autistic never gets enough praise, I don't think. I mean, he, he is a sitcom version of autistic. Yes, I would, yes. I would say. I would not say to anyone, yes, this is a, you know, a serious interpretation that, that you should pay serious attention to. But he is not treated as... He is never the target of the joke, and that frequently in season one there are points where he does stuff just to make his friends happy, even though it makes no difference to him whatsoever. There's a season one episode where they're trying to get him to to sort of chat some woman up. He he just does it to go along with with entertaining them. So like, I don't I don't need to bother really. Women normally come up to me, and then one <laughs> does. And you're right, he is never the butt of the joke. We are making it sound a little bit worthy there. I mean, it's not quite the Punisher, is it? <laughs> oh no, because no, no. it's very very funny and one of the best things about this is how merciless it is about it doesn't just ridicule glee it actually just picks on the deficiencies of the show i mean there is a line about how's your piano still playing this song (laughs) glee is the answer when your question is wrong probably worth pointing out that that the glee club has already been killed off once off screen in a bus crash which is which is referenced here but i found this quote from dan Harmon, if you will indulge me for a moment when people said you know why did you kill off the glee club do you just hate glee and he said i have no idea what you mean there was a glee club at greendale and their bus was driving on a rainy night and a downed power 
power line was hanging across the road and the bus drove through it and it sliced through the bus and decapitated everyone row by row so the people in the back had to watch all their friends get decapitated then they got decapitated then the bus drove into a pool of lava and I guess the crazy thing is the electricity from the power line somehow kept their nervous systems alive so they could feel the lava they didn't escape the pain of the lava just because they didn't have heads they felt the lava it was terrible but it was not metaphorical in any way I would never be that petty and envious of another show's popularity so he really doesn't like Glee really doesn't <laughs> and I think it's quite telling that whereas I think Glee has kind of it's almost just a word now nobody talks about it anymore nobody really remembers it it's not had a life beyond I mean I don't even know how many seasons it went on for it might still be going on now for all I know but community like you say has had this weird mini revival which is thoroughly deserved because it never really caught on in the way it should have done community absolutely the problem community in this country was available forever but it was on all four and all four is one of the worst streaming services i've ever had the misfortune to use i have had it play three minutes worth of adverts to me before the start of the show and then not play the show because it says it can't find it so I couldn't in good conscience say to people, yes, go go and do that. As soon as it was on Netflix, I told everyone I knew, go and watch this. If you've not already seen it, skip season four. You can skip season four. Uh, <laughs> come back to it later if you desperately want more, but skip season four. You were saying before about uh, Abed's obsessions. So the, the episode as a whole is bookended by Abed wanting everyone to come and watch the Inspector Space Time Christmas special. And Inspector Space Time is basically, it's, it's Doctor Who. It's just Doctor Who. But the holiday special is a very clear direct reference to the star wars holiday special because it's it's even got the the sort of i'm gonna watch a hologram of a band playing a song which is like literally in the star wars holiday (laughs) special but yeah it's nice that it ends with them all sat around watching this terrible terrible piece of television (laughs) well that brings me in the roundabout way to the even weirder way in which community sort of lived on which is that disney i don't know if you noticed this weekend but they've announced the guardians of the galaxy holiday special which is literally <laughs> all my that. hobbies and interests. But yeah, Community, not only do some of the main creatives behind it, producers and writers, now work on the Marvel movies. And directors, indeed. They've had most of the cast in mm-hmm. roles of varying degrees. There are rumours of more of them to come. But also, like several other shows, Community does exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because Dean Pelton, although he's not named, appears in Captain America Civil War. He he does. Jim Rash is being Dean Pelton. Nobody can convince me otherwise. No, no, I believe you. I, I just, I'm trying to work out, A, why he would have ever left Greendale after, you know, <laughs> everything that he's been through there. But B, who else would employ him? Because... He's not great at his job. <laughs> let's be let's be very clear on this. Uh, he seems to consider his job mostly to consist of wearing elaborate costumes and making Dean-based puns. Is it possible that he ended up in Civil War by accident because he wants to be in the Dean Fenders? Ooh. Oh, that burns. That burns. <laughs> well, not star burns. Not... Well, well, yeah, that's a good way to mention the end of this episode, yes. which... <laughs> I can't even try to explain this. Please, please do. So Community always has like a, a 30 second skit at the end going over the end credits, uh, apart from in season six where they didn't do that for some reason. This one is there's a there's a Christmas tree with a bunch of decorations on and various characters, various minor characters who have barely appeared in the episode <laughs> appear and are singing. I don't know what the what the tune actually is. Christmas bells, isn't it? There we go. But they're all singing it using their own catchphrases. And it's not if you haven't seen Community, me explaining (laughs) what they're all saying is not going to make any sense. 
but but it's it's very funny. <laughs> Indeed, it is. <laughs> oh, no more. So, Phil, is there anything else Christmassy that you're up to, you want to share with everyone? Yes. So at the moment, uh, myself and Ben Baker, who I didn't think I was talking to at the start of this recording, are currently doing an, an advent calendar for our podcast. Don't let's chart. So it's a, it's an episode every day. They're all about sort of five ten minutes long um ha- have a listen to those Norm- normally it's weekly and it's about half an hour but we're just doing something special for christmas brought from monday the 23rd of december 1991 bernard and the genie that might ring a few bells with some people but they won't be quite sure what it is because it's not been out there for ages at all in fact it's very recently as we record this been added to britbox but unfortunately that means you have to have a britbox subscription (laughs) so it might as well still be as obscure as before (laughs) so uh for those who don't know it's a, a a sort of short telly movie about a guy who's really down on his luck, despite being a really nice, if naive, guy, Bernard, who's played by Alan Cumming way before, uh, even before the high life and stuff, but before Hollywood hugeness. And uh, the only thing he's got left is this old lamp, which uh, he was given the year before and just put on a shelf and forgot about. And of course, there is a genie in it who is uh, played, of uh, of course, by Lenny Henry, playing the uh, manic sword-wielding Josephus. It's a Richard Curtis film, which is a Richard Curtis film from when Richard Curtis films didn't make you shudder. Also, the one person that I've mentioned so far, I mean, I'll come back to the director in a minute, and my thoughts on Richard Curtis. I have opinions on both, but (laughs) Rowan Atkinson is in this, and it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, he, he gets to play a rare villain. The slimiest boss you can imagine. And he, he loves... He, he, there's lots of bees in his status. That's a oh, funny-fledged bastard of a point, for example. And for some reason, he says ye and everything, including the excellent buggy ye off. <laughs> but yeah, it's, he is loving it. He is chewing the scenery and having seconds and pudding as well. He's, he's brilliant in it. Uh, and so is Dennis Lil who uh, plays probably Bernard's only real friend, uh, a doorman who is constantly less lying and more exaggerating the truth horribly. (laughs) 
the quote I can remember is, I had a friend who had both his legs blown off and he was up and walking around in a fortnight. Was he really? No. <laughs> and there's interesting people lower down the cast as well, because I mean, there are quite a few cameos which you might come back to. But mm. further down the cast list, there's Janet Hemphrey, who people might not know the name, but they'll know her when they see her. I think her most prominent role was she was the headmistress who was also a scarecrow in The Singing Detective. She was in a lot of things around there, but also Kevin Allen, who was always fifth down the mm. cast in everything like this around this time. Yeah, he, he's a good slimy character as well. But as I said, there are some some uh, fantastic, well-chosen cameos, because obviously Josephus can make anything happen, being a genie. And so that's our excuse for cameos from Gary Lineker, Melvin Bragg's in there, and Bob Geldof. And they're all very good in it as well. You know, they, they, they use just enough to not be, you know, unbearable. And there's also Trevor McDonald as indeterminate newscaster because, I mean, I think it was made by Talkback, wasn't it? But it was made for the BBC, so they couldn't really have him being an ITV newscaster. So he's just news. Yeah. So, as I said, it's it's a lovely film. It's it's been very well remembered by those who saw it and weren't watching Des O'Connor tonight on the other side. I mean, it's a very now a snapshot of London in 1991. Because they go out on the town and, you know, out on the town in 1991 to them means going to see Terminator 2. <laughs> and basically Joseph is eating everything in London, uh, including walking past a kebab stall. And he says, I'm glad dog meat is still popular. <laughs> Stuff like that. It's a culture clash stuff, but it really works. Well, it does, because one interesting thing about that is normally the thing is, you know, when somebody's an engine you in some way or naive, like they come from somewhere else sheltered or they come back from the past or whatever, it's all like they're being dazzled and like, you know, voraciously overwhelmed by modern stuff and comic capers ensue. Josephus really, for the most part, he just really likes this stuff. Presumably if it was geniness, he understands what it is. Although he doesn't understand the phone, which is quite a crucial plot point later. But he's like somebody who's found a new way of fine living. And I think that makes all the difference. It's not overplayed. He gets to be a really no. rounded character because of that. Yeah, it's weird because it's only like 65 minutes long. So about 65, 70 minutes long. I think it could be a full film. You know, there's there's more they could explore there. It's, it's over very quickly. And you'd, that's both, you know, a, a curse and a boon in terms of something like this because you can't get bored of it or let's say for example a film and let's pluck something random from there like Love Actually which is three (laughs) hours long and goes absolutely nowhere it's tight well written comedy well it's funny you should mention Love Actually did I mention I hate Love Actually Well, it is quite opposite you should mention that because that brings me round to the two observations I want to make about the people behind it and why it's a miracle it's as good as it is because I'm going to be fair to Richard Curtis. Around this time, he did this, he did The Tall Guy, a couple of other things mm. that where he was still getting the balance right between the comedy, the drama and the, you know, the emotional stuff, the pathos, the pathos and so on. Yeah, and I even yeah. think Four Weddings and a Funeral still gets that right. It's just yeah, that everyone absolutely. reacted to those aspects of it. And then, you know, the next thing is the Vicar of Dibley. I don't even turns mind Notting Hill. Well, yeah, maybe Notting Hill. But I think it started to become that that was what was seen as well-received. And that came to dominate. But the director, do you know much about Paul Welland? I know what the project he made before this was. <laughs> yes, that was something called Leonard Part 6, which... Let's just say, yeah. we used to joke about that a lot. We cannot joke about it anymore. No, it's a film by a disgraced man who is disgraced for a, a very good reason. Yeah, uh, so which is why I'm going and, to move and, and on it's very not even quickly as good, to. Yeah, it's not even as good as Ghost Dad. I mean, they might, they might have given Stop it away Stop it, right? Because I am moving on 
to some other highlights of his career, which include Mr. Bean, where, let's be honest about this, your mileage may vary. Some of them are great, some of them are just absolutely appalling. Blackout the Back and Forth, which I don't want to dwell on. <sighs> City Slickers 2, The Legend of Kirby's <laughs> Gold, which has a 17% aggregate rating on film sites. But he also did, have you ever seen 66, which is his autobiographical film? Yes, about yeah, his, yes. His bar uh, mix was on the day of England uh, winning the World Phoenix, Cup. Yeah, 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 and that is absolutely fantastic. That is a brilliant film. And I would yeah, say, I it's a lot better it, yeah. than The Genie in that, to be honest. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it gets the period right with that. But yeah, there is a bit of that kind of over-sentimentality and good guy fetish that Curtis has in this film. But, you know, it's it's kept to a bare minimum. Now, Alan Cumming is the main reason uh, that it works so well because Bernard is, is kind of like, if he's not played right, it could be too sappy. It could be too, oh, uh, you know, just get on with it. But he's, he's not. Alan Cumming really, really works as the everyman who's just down on his luck. And this was his big break as well because before that, I mean, I say it was a big break. It was a big break kind of UK-wide. I mean, he was well-known in Scotland, but when you look at his credits, genuinely, it's Taggart. Take the High Road and Shadow of the Stone, which is the only Scottish children's series anyone remembers from the 80s. So it was kind of a very self-stereotyping CV, but this was really... I mean, how long after this was the pilot the High Life? It wasn't that long, was it? Uh, well, it was, it was 94, but yeah, I presume it was in uh, production. It was in there, because obviously uh, it came from a double act he had with Forbes Masson called Victor and Barry, and they used to turn up on a lot of stuff, and they were overly camp hosts, basically. They were doing that, so I think they'd been sort of headhunted to do something interesting. Uh, and the High Life is an absolutely brilliant sitcom. It's seven episodes, I think. Six episodes and a pilot, I think. And to be honest, it's probably enough. Yeah, well, they did say they were off of the second series, but because his career was taking off, they both decided they didn't want to risk doing a below-par second series, The High Life, because they adored it so much. What an amazing decision to make. Yeah, well, that's 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 it, exactly. It's like, I didn't say that because I think it's a bad thing. I'm, just, I, I'm glad they didn't make a second second series and like many things that we like have i'm very fond of series one of miranda for example series two not so much i preferred it on the radio to be honest with you so well yeah there's that as well didn't everything get better on the radio i've got to bring back my old catchphrase yeah As I said, this is on BritBox at the moment. If you do have a subscription to that, do find it. I watched it on YouTube. Whether it's been pulled since because of the BritBox thing, I don't know. But weird right situations basically kept it off telly for a while. And there's been a big budget blockbuster movie version of it in the works since about 1993 but as I found out it was meant to be co-produced by uh, Harvey Weinstein and co-written with Graham Linnan M- maybe it's best it didn't <laughs> 
Okay, well, to lighten the mood a bit to end on, Ben, <laughs> is there anything Christmassy that you're up to that you want to share with everyone? I have written a, a book. Uh, I've written three Christmas TV books, actually. A trilogy, if you will. And the latest one is I Was Bored on Christmas Day, 90s Christmas telly from Ant and Deck to Zig and Zag. And it is my love letter to a decade that I thought wasn't that nostalgic at the time of starting it, but realised how much changed, how telly became such a different thing from the start to the end with more channels and digital and, you know, the, the deregulation of TV listings and stuff so you didn't have to buy two. And uh, Channel 5 because, well, Channel 5. And it's uh, also going along with an advent calendar I'm doing, an audio thing with Phil Catterall, who uh, we're doing a, a, an episode a day of our thing, Don't Let's Chat, which you can find you can find us at Don't Let's Chat on Twitter. And if you want more from me, at Ben Baker Books on Twitter. There's all sorts of information there and possibly some swear words. Gareth, what have you brought with you? I have brought an episode of Futurama, Season 2, Episode 4, Xmas Story, first broadcast on the 19th of December, 1999. Well, the interesting thing about Futurama is it never quite, although it was hyped as, you know, the successor to The Simpsons, it never quite took off in that way. So I'll come back to why I think it didn't take off later, but how would you describe it to anyone who's not that familiar with it? Well, Futurama was created by Matt Groening, who's the man behind The Simpsons, and also a Simpsons writer called David Cohen, who is credited on Futurama as David X Cohen, which I think is just to sound a bit more sci-fi-ish. It was well hyped as The Simpsons, but it's sci-fi. It's not exactly like that, but it's the story of Philip J. Fry, who's a pizza delivery man who fell into a cryogenic freezing unit and lived in suspended animation for a thousand years, waking up in the world of tomorrow in the year 3000. And he makes friends with a suicidal construction robot called Bender and Chiranga Leela, who is a, an alien cyclops and the only one of her kind in the known universe. And they work for Fry's distant descendant, who is also ancient, Professor Hubert Farnsworth. And he runs an interplanetary package delivery company that's based in New New York City. And hilarity ensues. Hilarity does ensue, because one thing I loved about this episode at the time and re-watching it was, apart from those major characters, there are several minor ones who occasionally do get their own episodes but they mainly just do background gags in the same way that you know when you get a Lisa or a Marge heavy episode of The Simpsons and Homer and Bart are just being ridiculous in a B-plot they're kind of like that but just in small glimpses so we've got Dr. Zoidberg who's a very down at heel physician lobster Amy Wong whose character is very hard to describe because she is a kind of girly girl but also a massive techno head and in this episode there's a great gag where she is trying to put a star on top of a tree and loses control of her jetpack and just smashes around while the rest of this kind of touching heartwarming scene is going on and Hermes Conrad who is kind of the bureaucrat of the organisation who somehow always manages to get the best lines I've never quite figured out how yeah there's a real structure to good Hermes dialogue they're just really good at writing for this larger ensemble it's like like you say there's probably three main characters in Fry, Bender and Leela and then at least four or five ancillary characters you've also got Nibbler who 
was largely non-verbal, but would also usually get something to do. And then later on, Scruffy the janitor as well. And all of these get something to do in this episode, particularly in the kind of opening, I would say, five or so minutes, which is a, a montage of things happening at a ski resort. And I say that, and you can imagine exactly the kind of gags that are happening. That's no bad thing. It's, it's kind of like it's it's five minutes of every joke you could think of about skiing and bobsledding and so on and so forth. And, and it just really works. You've also got Ben flying off of the side of a cliff and crashing into an icy lake, that drowning all of the Peanuts-esque toe-headed kids who are skating on it. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Is there are a lot more references in this than I realised, because there is the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas reference that you just mentioned, the Cool Runnings one. There's Fry hanging off a digital clock face like Harold Lloyd. There's a number of things like that. There's also, did you notice the name of the pet shop? No, no. What, what was that? It's Joe's Ark Pet Store, which is named after a BBC Dennis Potter play. Wow. That's a deep reference, really. That is a very deep cut. I mean, it's a really good episode, like even in, in terms of Futurama itself, but it, it is festive, you know. It works well as a Christmas special as well. It deals with Fry's first Christmas in the future and everything that's sort of changed around that. So, so palm trees are used instead of pine trees because pine trees are extinct. They went the way of the poodle and our primitive notions of modesty, apparently, which is an excuse for Professor Farnsworth to be naked throughout a lot of this episode. Everyone says axe instead of ask, although bizarrely an axe doesn't work in the way that you would expect it to. Perhaps worst of all, someone invented a robot Santa to keep track of who was naughty and nice, but due to a programming error, it thinks everyone is naughty and deserves punishment, so he attacks the earth every Christmas Eve and kills anyone he possibly can. Voice brilliantly by John Goodman, and the whole plot is basically that Fry is made aware of it, he doesn't seem to care because he doesn't quite get it, and he stays out trying to buy Leela a present which necessitates a visit to the pet store where he buys a parrot that flies away and he says, you thought you could beat me in a game of wits but you just met your equal which is the best line <laughs> in the whole thing but he then has to be rescued from the robot Santa, firstly by Leela who is also a judge who being very, very naughty, but then they both have to be rescued by Bender has decided after seeing a heart-rending news story about homeless robots at Christmas being served oil uh, basically crisis he says he's going to volunteer, he actually goes to get some oil himself, picks up some disreputable robots that he goes carol singing and stealing with, and then ends up having to protect. First of all, after seeing Leela and Fry and saying, wait, let's not mug these guys, I know them, they've not got anything. He then has to defend them from Robot Santa, who ends up exploding, or so we think, anyway. I, I do love, there's a sequence with Bender and the down-at-heel robots, where absolutely nothing happens on screen. He, they, they do some carol singing, and a, an old woman lets them into her house for a traditional glass of hard cider. Basically, they wind up robbing her. But we don't see any of that at all. What we see is like 10 seconds of, of just the outside of a house and nothing happening. And it's all it's all done with voice acting and sound effects. It's, it's just great. I'm, I'm always agog at that. How great I find that sequence and how little is actually happening in it. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're on the can. He'll hunt you down and blast your ass from here to Pakistan. Oh. You better not breathe. You better not move. You better off dead, I'm telling you, dude. Santa Claus is gunning you down. And yet there's so much in the episode itself. There's one thing we didn't mention was it does open at the ski lodge with the comedy stylings of Conan O'Brien, who does his Y2K book material. Now, this was one of the genius things about the, the setup for the show was the idea that celebrities and world leaders would have their heads live on in jars after their death, which meant that they could continue to get 
guest stars that were contemporary into this future show without having to do time travel every single time. They're just ahead in a jar somewhere. So we get the whole cast of Star Trek at one stage. Oh, except for Scotty, who's replaced by Welshie. We get Pamela Anderson in the first series. Lucy Liu obviously makes a memorable appearance. She does. I love you, Philip J. Fry. It's another thing I say <laughs> quite often. But we also get a recurring character, Richard Nixon, who accidentally lets slip his plans to go into people's houses at night and wreck up the place. Again, a phrase I use quite a lot. But it's portrayed as if he's history's greatest monster in terms of presidents. And his coming back is the worst thing that could ever happen. That's a joke that's <laughs> aged slightly badly, I think. I, I don't think that was a very contemporary joke at the time either. It's um, it's, it's strange. I, I guess having having not lived in, in America at that stage, it, it, they, they always seem to be quite scarred by Nixon. So it was a it was an interesting ask. I, I just love I, I can't actually remember who does it, but the Nixon impression, as far as I'm concerned, that that's more Nixon than actual Nixon. I'm always listening to old bits of his interviews, expecting him to say "aroo" at some stage. We just mentioned they've they've got this this strong key ensemble of characters, but all the background characters are incredibly well fleshed out as well. They definitely took some of the best lessons that they'd learned with The Simpsons and applied it to this show. And I think that shows in the way that it hits the ground running immediately. The first couple of seasons of The Simpsons, and I'm just going to say it, and I, I get flack for this being a you know one of the internet's uh, leading Simpsonsmen. Well, I'm not really. But, you know, as, as somebody that people know like The Simpsons, I get a lot of flack for saying seasons one and two are not that good. I mean, specifically I season one, but season two, to a certain extent, they just hadn't found their feet. And it all clicks in in season three. Futurama doesn't need that sort of maturation process. They know how to get everything across to you in the first three episodes, I would say. After which there's there's only minor world building from then on. And that that's amazing to say that they're introducing you to a completely alien world. Just very, very efficient. Yeah, I would say I don't need to put a foot wrong, except now I know we slightly differ on this. There were four seasons of Future Armor originally, which were really, really good. They were aimed at a mainstream audience. It just didn't really take off. Then they brought it but it was a bit like Red Dwarf became later on. They made it very continuity heavy, skewed it very much towards the fans some I would say dubious jokes to please the fan base and for me it was never the same after that and that could be part of the reason why I can't say Futurama's forgotten but it's sort of it isn't remembered if that makes sense no I, I agree with you I do like the later stuff uh, certainly more than you do from um, uh, conversations <laughs> we've had but it's difficult to put anything against that original four season run and have it look good because it was that good and you tell people now and they won't believe you so there's definitely been some eroding of its legacy. And at the time, I've been reading up about this recently, Fox seemed to lose faith in the show almost immediately. At first, it would have been, this is the new thing from the guy that did The Simpsons, basically our biggest show. Right, let's roll out the red carpet. But something changed. What changed was South Park arriving. At that stage, they also had this little Seth MacFarlane animation family guy sort of on the books. And that turned out to be kind of edgy and more adult oriented in that very sort of late 90s way where it looks really immature now and fox basically threw the whole budget and weight behind that there's um, some talk that futurama's original debut slot was meant to be after the super bowl but family guy got that instead 
And I think that's not helped that they, they didn't have that support in the first place. They didn't get it in front of as many eyes as they could have done in the first place. So it's a it's a quality show that hasn't hasn't quite taken its rightful place in television history. As Chris Cross would say, it's a shame. Okay, so Gareth, hoping that Robot Santa isn't listening, is there anything Christmassy you're up to that you want to share with everyone? Nothing especially festive, although I would imagine there would have been a quite a recent episode of Retrospecticus out. And if there is, then it may well have a, a guest appearance from someone not a thousand miles from this very podcast. I'm going to turn the tables now and talk to Tim about a festive special that he thinks people have forgotten. So, Tim, what have you brought with you? I've brought with me, there's going to be very little surprise to most people, the Doctor Who Christmas special from 2006, The Runaway Bride, which is the one that, I mean, it's not even like it's one of the lesser ones, but it's the one that nobody seems to mention now. So I think the first thing that needs to be mentioned about this particular Christmas special is whilst it's unusual not to have an episode of Doctor Who at Christmas or New Year these days, it was far from an institution at the time this came out. There had only been two Christmas specials before, and one of those was very different to what we'd been used to. Yeah, that was in 1965. That was the Feast of Stephen, which is basically, it was in the middle of a huge long Dalek story, the Dalek Master Plan, and it was essentially just the panto with the cast giving an excuse to just mess around for 25 minutes on Christmas Day and it ended endlessly controversially with William Hartnell toasting the viewers at home was that in character was that out of character nobody seems to know and the other had obviously been the year before which was the first full episode with David Tennant as the Doctor yeah that was the Christmas Invasion which I think made much more of an impact because yeah it was on Christmas Doctor Who was it had only just come back into any kind of status where it would even been anywhere near Christmas Day. It was less than a year previously it had come back before that. I mean, I think I actually agree with the theory that public affection towards it had been building back up while it wasn't on the air. I think it goes back to Doctor in the TARDIS, which, you know, while the show itself, its stock could not have been lower with the general public, that kind of marks the point at which the idea starts, you know, a fondness for it starts fermenting in people's minds. And then it builds up and up and you get, you know, get people like Lee and Herring and Harry Hill making jokes about Doctor Who, but not about ho, 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 the monsters are all cardboard and the walls are made of rubber or whatever it is. They're affectionate jokes about, you know, getting the book of the Silurians from the library, which was a Lee and Herring staple that was. You know, all kinds of things like that happen. The time was right for it to come back. I didn't expect it to be on Christmas Day. I didn't expect it to work on Christmas Day. But good Lord almighty, the Christmas invasion was good. And everyone thought so, including people who wouldn't normally watch Doctor Who. Fast forward a year, you get The Runaway Bride, which guest stars Catherine Tate as a runaway bride. 
And what's interesting here is that had been part of Russell T. Davis's pitch when he was bringing the show back was it was going to be an episode called The Runaway Bride, presumably named after the Julia Roberts movie, where the Doctor got involved with a bride-to-be that was kidnapped by aliens. Obviously, that later became this Christmas special. Catherine Tate had shown up at the end of Army and Ghosts and Doomsday, which I think we watched after a barbecue, did we not? Yes, I, I think it was around our uh, mutual friend Chris's house, if yes. I remember rightly. Yeah, she just, in the middle of the Doctor kind of silently mourning Rose's disappearance into the dimension, Catherine Tate appears in a TARDIS in a wedding dress and basically barks at him, where am I? And we get the first of the, what? 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 Nobody does that like David Tennant, as, as I've just proved. But it's actually quite, in some ways, it's an action-packed but a low-key episode, because it kind of, it's very low stakes. Cutting a long story short, and not spoiling anything, but an ancient race want Donna, Catherine Tate's character, for some reason, and the Doctor wants to stop them. It is that simple, though, isn't it? it it's it's for reasons, is the answer to, to why basically everything is happening. Pretty much, and I think it's maybe because of that low stakes thing, even though you've got, I mean, David Tennant's a Catherine Tate, whatever you think of Catherine Tate's sketch show, they work together fantastically. I love the dynamic between the two characters, that she's somebody who's neither in awe of nor frightened of the Doctor, she sees him as annoyance, initially thinks... And this quite took me aback watching it again. He's a serial killer who's abducted her, especially because there are clues of other women littered around the TARDIS. That's quite shocking. But then they develop a rapport where she sees him as an equal, an annoying equal, but an equal. And that is what Donna needs, because when we return to the wedding reception, because she disappeared you know, at the altar, her family and her friends are having the reception without her. And the way they treat her, and this, when she later came back as a regular character, this will continue to that. The way her family and friends treat her is dreadful. She is a confident, assured, witty woman who has been kind of condensed by other people not liking that. They try to slot her into a role they want for her. That kind of establishes that dynamic when they're just partying and not caring what's happened to this poor woman who has just disappeared into thin air at her own wedding. It's strange, though, to, to think about this episode now, because it, it was meant to be a one-off, as far as I can tell. There was no there was no hint that there was going to be any continuation of this. And like you say, massively low stakes. So there's, there's no need for any element of it really to come back. But it's been lent a huge amount of importance by the later return of Donna as uh, the Doctor's assistant in season four. It makes what could have been a very frivolous episode kind of extra meaningful. We, we do learn in that series that if Donna hadn't have been there, the Doctor would have died on this particular adventure. And it makes it really difficult to view it now the way that we first viewed it, because back then it was just meant to be a thing yeah it was just a run around i mean literally there's a scene where she's abducted in the car and the tardis is chasing the car down the motorway and some children are cheering the doctor on as well which is a lovely touch but you are right it's been given more weight in retrospect i mean donna's line about you need somebody to stop you ties in exactly with what happens across the series she comes back in yeah like you say it wasn't planned that she would return on the regular basis but i'm so glad she did I mean, people who know me are going to be rolling their eyes and laughing at this. But yes, I'm a huge fan of Catherine Tate for many, many reasons. But <laughs> I think she was exactly what was needed for Doctor Who at that point. I think she did it brilliantly. She didn't hang around too long. Her return in a much smaller role later on in David Tennant's tenure was really well done as well. I do think it's a shame that this first appearance kind of gets overshadowed now because it isn't without it. I mean, they've already mentioned the business 
consciousness about Donna's family in the reception. There's, there's another incredible scene at the reception which lasts about maybe 10 seconds where the doctors just stood up on the sidelines looking at everyone dancing to the sound of Neil Hannon singing a very, very transparent rip-off of North and Soul favourite The Snake by Al Wilson. But while he's watching them, he gets glimpses of himself dancing with Rose. I have been to wedding receptions where I have felt like that. That really packs a punch. It's a marked contrast with... Do you remember the other time the doctor was at a wedding reception? It was Amy and Rory's where he dances the crazy little thing called love. I appreciate what they're trying to do there, but I kind of... It is an established thing that the doctor will slope away from things like that, and... That just never sat right with me, whereas this kind of, it put you firmly on his side. I love as well that it's not dwelt on, there's not even any dialogue to it. He immediately spots somebody filming the reception and thinks, whoa, they must have captured the moment she disappeared. And you know, his entire mood changes. And I love the zigzagging between moods like that as well. take the whole thing they've all had a look they said sell it to you being framed i said more like the news okay. here we are can't be played again clever mind good trick i'll give her that i was clapping that looks like human particles what's that then that's impossible that's Ancient human energy doesn't exist anymore, not for billions of years. So old. It's got some very good bits in it. One thing I've always thought was not very good was the monster of the week. But then that, that action sequence you mentioned with the, the TARDIS chasing the taxis is, like, really good. It's uh, better than BBC TV budget good. So, basically, I wonder if all the money went there and then they, they had to make a uh, a rubber spider, essentially, yeah, for the... Yeah, the, uh, the isn't great. And also, it's a great problem with it that Sarah Parrish is normally tremendous in everything she's in. I think she's given some very embarrassing dialogue here, you know, kind of written in spiderese. The scenery chewing, but I don't see what else she could have done with it, really. It's, it's just not very... As as a threat, I don't take any of it seriously, I suppose. Which is kind of fine for Christmas, when you think about it. And that, that all leads me to my, my next question, sort of. Uh, obviously, we can talk about what we think of it as an episode of Doctor Who, but what do you think of this as a piece 
specifically of Christmas entertainment. I think it does everything it needs to. I think it delivers. I think it's got the right amount of excitement and emotion and action. I mean, there's a lot of action sequences in it. And I think the key thing about it is, I mean, obviously it's presented in Doctor Who terms. It's got a lot of different locations, including underneath a warehouse with a giant spider. But in tone, it's very much like a Christmas EastEnders in the interaction between Donna's friends and family in particular. I don't say that in a derogatory way. I think that was what Russell T. Davis did so well, was to take these ideas that would have been the preserve of, you know, some people desperately clinging to the idea that Doctor Who was still valid in 1987 and made them accessible to the sort of people who'd be watching on Christmas Day for a bit of a laugh. And I think this is where he does it really well. I'll tell you what, though, one thing. I mean, I do have a recurring theory because obviously I know quite a bit about the Marvel Cinematic Universe the one thing they never talk about when they talk about the influences for it and I think this is the deliberate omission is the whole Russell D. Davis Doctor Who Torchwood Sarah Jane Adventures thing there are so many cues from that that are picked up by the Marvel movies they clearly had an influence and two things I noticed here were one Donna's recap of the events of how she came to be the runaway bride very reminiscent of how Luis describes things in the Ant-Man films <laughs> there's a clear line between the two of them and also the first Ant-Man film was partially written by Joe Cornish and Edgar Wright who will have watched this let's be honest about it but also elements of the plot are quite similar to the plot of Thor the Dark World <laughs> that does actually have a plot I know people have looked for it and gone away disappointed there is one in there and it is reminiscent of that but I've got a very different problem with this episode which is there's a point at which without giving too much away the doctor drains the Thames and it reveals a bare riverbed now wouldn't it have things like old monster munch packets and some boats <laughs> and the Cray twins rivals and things like that wouldn't... I just didn't buy that at all that kind of took me out of it a bit no sometimes it's better to say rather than show if what you've got to show isn't going to be realistic it's, it's a powerful visual but like you say yeah it's uh, I, I was thinking much the same thing I was also thinking surely the doctor's left something down here at some stage like shouldn't there be some dead zygons or something oh there's probably a new adventure somewhere called under the thames where he does something under the thames so while i'm here is there anything christmasy that you're up to that you want to share with everyone yeah i've recorded a couple of things guest appearances and other things there's a mini episode of looks unfamiliar on don't let's chart which i'm not sure when that's out but it may be out before or after this who knows i'm also talking about something doctor who related on the music of the head by podcast and then might there might well be another looks unfamiliar before Christmas. Just what do you you what do you, you can't really say keep your eyes open about podcast players, can you? But whatever the equivalent of that is. And also, if you get Doctor Who magazine this month, you'll find me talking about I'm going to spend my Christmas with the Dalek, the 1964 novelty tie-in Dalek single, and the story behind that, and who made it and why. What have you brought with you? I have brought 
an episode of The West Wing from the first series of The West Wing. It has that rare creature, Amandi, but it also has, it's the Christmas episode of The West Wing, the first Christmas episode they did, and it's so moving. Honestly, I think I cried three or four times re-watching this for you. It does that whole duty thing that The West Wing does really, really well. But it also explains why duty is important and why the country is important and why our duty to each other is important. So, yeah, it's a really beautiful episode. It's called In Excelsis Deo. Well, the reason I find this interesting is I think it gets overlooked compared to the other Christmas ones because, it, like you say, it does come from series one where I'm a big fan of first series of things that went on to be really good because... They don't generally know what they're doing. I mean, the best example I can think of is The Goodies, which isn't really that much like The West Wing, really. (laughs) But kind of, as you say, there's Mandy, who's a character that doesn't work. There's directions they go in, they don't go in again. It's a little bit, you can't say it's all over the place, but it only really finds its purpose when they come to the cliffhanging episodes at the end of the first series. And this is... It doesn't really, although there's a lot of character development for some characters, it doesn't really move any plot forward. It's just a wonderful standalone story. I mean, there is something in the background about one of the characters, but it's mainly just the plot is that Toby gets a call about a homeless man who's died, who had his business card. He'd given his coat to Goodwill, and this man had ended up wearing it. And it all spirals out from that, doesn't it? Yeah, for those English listeners who have no idea what Goodwill is, it's it's basically a charity shop. That's this central storyline, but it what it does is give us a bigger universe of all of the characters. So Toby is central to this, but the point where the president says, I understand that I've randomly assigned a military funeral to happen. And Toby's like, yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. And and actually, Bartlett is, yeah, I did. <laughs> he gets it. The beautiful storyline of Mrs. Landingham, who reveals in this episode that she lost twin boys in Vietnam and then goes along with Toby to the ceremony because she wants to see them honoured. There's also, this is the first time in which CJ and Danny have a proper flirt. And oh, yes. <laughs> who doesn't love CJ and Danny? <laughs> Equally, Josh and Donna have their first kind of meaningful interaction during this episode. So there's definitely a lot going on here for long-term fans, but also for those who are just into that particular storyline. And what's Mandy actually doing during this? Because we should basically, I mean, I, I doubt there'll Mandy be many people listening. basically telling everyone not to do the things that they want to do. That's Mandy's entire job for the whole of season one. <laughs> don't do the thing you want to do. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't imagine there'd be many people listening who don't know what the West Wing is, but just as a brief rundown, President Bartlett is the president. CJ is the press officer at first, isn't she? He's the press secretary. Leo McGarry is the chief of staff. Toby, I want to say Maguire, but that's... Siegler. (laughs) (laughs) Toby Siegler, thank you, is the chief of communications. Then you have the Deputy Chief of Communications, who's Josh Lyman. And then his assistant, Donna, Donna Moss. Donna Moss, that's it. That's the basic cast. Well, there's also Sam Seaborn, who is barely in this episode, played by Rob Lowe, oh. who is my favourite character. And, of course, Charlie, the president's body man, as they call it, who basically just hands him stuff. Yeah. Although there's, there's so more to Charlie it than that, but that's the role. Charlie is there to do whatever the president needs doing. That is the literally the role of the body man. Charlie is brilliant. 
he's so cynical and funny and wonderful. And of course, Rob Lowe, who it's so interesting because I never thought Rob Lowe would excel Sam Seaborn for me. But actually, Rob Lowe in Parks and Rec. Oh, my God. (laughs) He's just wonderful, isn't he? I don't know if you saw the episode of Parks and Rec that was filmed during lockdown. But I was like sitting there with my own lighter going, bye, bye, little And then I looked. And it was literally me and Rob in complete unison. And yeah, like I say, he barely appears in this episode because it is a there aren't many Toby-focused episodes over the whole run of it, which is interesting. I mean, he's a character who's heavily involved throughout, but he rarely gets solo stories. But this is one of his, and it's I think the reason this works for me better than the other later Christmas specials is it tells one simple story that there's not much to. He arranges a funeral for a homeless man. That's it. But it tells it so well. Yeah, and with yeah, so much yeah. detail, like you say, with the detail about Mrs. Landingham's sons, with Charlie's kind of tempered excitement about the first Christmas in the White House, which the others don't have because obviously he's is younger than the youngest of them. And also we saw him being hired where they'd all been in there since the beginning. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I adore Noel, the Josh Lyman focused Christmas episode there is nothing more likely to make me cry than than watching that it's not very festive though is it (laughs) no (laughs) it it did introduce me to the bells carol though that I didn't know before whereas I did know little drum boy because my darling nephew has sung that every year on karaoke (laughs) for at least 10 years and god love him Yeah, because it does end, well, it's not quite the end of the episode, but the climax of it is the military funeral, where it intercuts with Little Drummer Boy being sung in the White House with, I don't know how they did it, they get the gun salute to go in time with the pa-ru-pa-pum-pum-ru-pa-pum-pums. Yeah, it's so clever, isn't it? Toby and Mrs Landingham flinching while the soldiers don't, which is a lovely touch. Absolutely. I was was going to mention that the, the flinches are so cleverly done, don't you think? Toby and Mrs. Landingham, the civilians, they flinch because they're not used to hearing the sound of guns and awfully all of the military are.
And there's also the really weird detail that I've forgotten about until I rewatched it, which is the policeman at the start who calls Toby. It's played by Lance Reddick, who a lot of people, probably you included, thinking that's the guy from Fringe. <laughs> it's even more weird when you know him as Daniels from The Wire. And you do have to wonder, is this Daniels in another post in another city before yeah. the start of The Wire? He's slightly I different to Daniels, so probably not, watched, not. I famously have not watched The Wire. <laughs> But as you and I both know, we've watched all five seasons of Fringe and adore it. But you can't really fashion the Fringe crossover with this, I don't think. No, I, I, I don't think that's fair. And also, I think that's actually, thinking about it in a more intellectual way, it's not fair to actors to do that to them. Toby Ziegler is Toby Ziegler. And Josh Lyman is Josh Lyman. But when you watch, oh, I can't remember the name of it. What's that brilliant film that we went to see with Josh Lyman in? I'd have voted for Obama for a third time. Oh, Get Out. Get Out. That's it. He's a different person in that. And it would be really unfair to tinge Josh Lyman with the awfulness of that guy yeah you can only build expanded the universe so far but what yeah. really struck me about this was that i remember not just at the time but even because i've rewatched the west wing a few times was it always felt even in light episodes like this like not a heavy drama but a heavy weight drama there was weight behind it it yeah, was yeah. something that was as serious as it was funny watching them again recently because i have restarted on series one again i think given things that have happened in the last couple of years it does not feel that heavy anymore it doesn't quite feel light and escapist but uh, season two will change your mind it will but even so isn't it strange how you know the, the worst things that happened in the west wing were not as bad as some things that happened in real life season one i'm amazed they got as far as they did after season one because season one frankly is very very light it doesn't have all of the uh, season two is genuinely i think other than the second and first season of Twin Peaks, the best thing that's ever been on television. So it's quite annoying that you have to go through season one to get to season two. You can't even skip it like you could with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Just watch the last two of series rather than carry on from there. Because you need to know about the characters. That's you do. The... You need the story. It's not all goodwill at Christmas because there is a slightly darker story now about Leo McGarry, about his past substance problems are about to be rumbled and it's really well done because you almost don't notice that running in the background it is like the way it would be in real life it's something that's in the background because it's not become a threat yet and that's so true to the way that politics works politics is nothing 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 crisis i've seen that happen so often so actually it's very, very realistically done. And Nothing, Nothing, Nothing Crisis is kind of a good way of describing series one, in fact. But we do get this great episode in the middle of it. So, Emma, is there anything Christmassy you're up to that you want to share with everyone? No, because obviously no one's getting to do anything Christmassy. But here's the thing I will share. My darling, darling niece is spending New Year's Eve with me. And we are going to be watching the New Year's Eve Wi-Fi Wars together. And I cannot recommend highly enough that everyone else joins us. And donates to the charities that the Wi-Fi Wars is running for.
Peter Serafinowicz Show. Paul, what have you brought with you? I'm taking us back to 2008 and the Peter Serafinowicz Show Christmas special. Yes, this was a series on BBC Two that only ran for the one series in the Christmas special, which really should be better remembered than it is. I mean, it, it's still not clear why it was cancelled after the one series because it was raved over and they got really good ratings. It's one of the first people really to harness the power of social media because it all came from some sketches he did. Just one. Yeah. The story is that his other half, Sarah Alexander, was having auditions in America and while he was bored, he just did these sketches, these own news sketches and put them online and they went massive and the series essentially came out of that. Maybe it was just a bit too early. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's a funny thing because if it had been a BBC Three show, it might have been a massive BBC Three show. But because it's on BBC Two, it feels like it's sort of got lost in the mix a little bit and they've not known what to do with it. And it ends up sliding in the uh, schedules as well, I think. Yeah, and there were many worse shows that they kept plugging with. I mean, I'm not going to name names, but I think we all know what some of them were. But this, it did actually make a Christmas special, which went out in two edits, actually. And only one of them was commercially released, the half-hour one on the DVD. And there was a slightly longer 40-minute one, which had some losable material. It had some very good stuff as well. Yeah, uh, well, I watched, firstly, the what they call the bumper edition. That's how it was It was sold on screen. And that was repeated on midnight of Christmas Eve, tipping into Christmas Day, which is a strange slot for anything. And then I compared it to the original, because, fortunately, social media hasn't left him behind. It's all on YouTube now, in a fairly official-looking format on the Dead Parrot pages, whatever they are. Yeah, there's... A good lump of extra stuff that makes up that 10 minutes. And like you say, some of it is great. Quite a bit of it's not so good and is understandable why it wasn't there. Well, we should start with probably what is the main thing most people remember from the Peter Sarah and the Witch show, which is Brian Butterfield, who gets quite a few, particularly the bumper edition, gets quite a few appearances to himself in this. When you first mentioned this to me and we were talking about Peter Serafinovich, I've seen quite a lot of it on YouTube since because it, it has this afterlife, it has a before life on YouTube and it has this afterlife as well because it, it snippets up nicely like sketch shows do. And Brian Butterfield, the thing I have seen over and over and over again, I think is one of the funniest things, is Brian Butterfield doing Grandma Butterfield's Christmas Pizza. This, the list of ingredients is just so so ludicrous. It's so well-delivered. It feels like a real thing that clearly isn't a real thing. I can't quite make out what it's parodying, as because the, the Brian Butterfield idea is brilliant. He starts out as one of these sort of, you know, ambulance chaser-type parodies, and then suddenly he's doing Christmas Pizza and the Buttertendo game system and things like that. I've certainly, out of everything that Peter Serafinovich has ever done, I have watched Grandma Butterfield's Christmas Pizza with... Chocolate currency, nutty nut nuts, varicose vein cheese. Oh, it's wonderful. It's so funny. Well, I love that Brian Butterfield, who, you know, was a fantastic creation. And really, I mean, there were so many great things in the series itself, but he was what really elevated it, that he has had an existence since then. I mean, people forget now, he turned up as a guest yes. on Shooting Stars, where he said Osama Bin Laden so confidently <laughs> that he fell off his chair. Just one day out of nowhere, Mr. B. Butterfield turned up on Twitter with a long stream of tweets saying things like log on, hello, and ghoul, which is my favourite. I mean, there have been various attempts to get him into different things, but just launched the other day, the Brian Butterfield podcast. It's one of the funniest things I've heard in a long time. 
I won't spoil it, but I was in hysterics at the end when he says, do you recognise this sound? What happens after that is incredibly it is, funny. It was very good. I, I wondered what format it was going to take, but I think he's nailed it. And the other thing that Brian Butterfield does is he was in a load of kids' TV sketch shows as well, sports-themed ones. And it's like, of all the people to sort of bring in from this ostensibly adult sketch show, and he's not a sporty character, but they bring him into this kid's... I've forgotten what it was called now. I think it was it. To, I think they commissioned it to tie in with the Olympics, possibly. So there was big you know, sports programming on kids' TV. <laughs> Brian Butterfield's one of the main characters. And then the bumper edition, as well as the things mentioned, we get his New Year's resolutions, which is an absolute masterpiece of comic timing, because they are all funny but straightforward things like, see more of my family, take photos yes. of my family. And you're like <laughs> holding a frame with the backing card in it. But then just from nowhere, towards the end of it, there's escape the clutches of Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> He's being chased through corridors by some men dressed in, you know, those Scientology suits and yeah. ties. And there's a lot of these celebrity impressions in it, particularly the bumper edition, where you get things like, there's Michael Caine with his updated Christmas pudding, where instead of putting a sixpence in, you load the credit card with sixpence of credit and bake it in. <laughs> I'm making this one for Christian Bale. There's yes. Al Pacino making a card by cutting things out of magazines. Yes, putting glitter cards with his own <laughs> face on that he keeps in for himself. Robert De Niro's phone book, where he just crosses out all the people he doesn't know, which is, you know, a, a joke as old as time, but delivered like that it's fantastic Alan Alder's healthy Christmas tree as well where he puts on seed mix and tofu cake instead of candy canes <laughs> but the one that really kind of stands on its own in an unusual way doesn't like any of the rest of them it's, there's quite a few appearances by Jeremy Clarkson and Raul and Raul yes we'll, we'll let you work out what the implication is from that but I kind of felt that with somebody like Jeremy Clarkson that would sting him more the fact that it isn't a, an overt joke it is just played in the background of this subdued impersonation of him and he's got nothing to get outraged about it felt to me like it didn't necessarily i couldn't quite work work out what the purpose of that sketch was and in the bumper edition there's quite a few cuts back to this in the in the main edit there's only one top gear with jeremy clarkson and raul i do worry about the fact that it's like he's clearly trying to make fun of jeremy clarkson by suggesting he's gay but by suggesting people are gay that's not that's not a good thing to make fun of people by it's it's a bit weird that was the one i thought i could have done without that it's not worn well that one for the exact reasons you state i do wonder if the context was though thinking back that it was around the time through comedy all those sorts of people being you know allowed to be seen as avuncular figures i'm not saying clarkson's as bad as any of these but you know we've ended up with the prime minister we have because of a topical mm. news quiz show people forget harry and paul had nigel farage on in a sketch with them that sort of thing was happening and it could be that this was in some way a statement of a rejection of that i can see the argument for that but i just think in terms of the material in the episode as well it's not very good yeah in terms of his celebrity impressions he is so good at so many of these impressions and it's strange actually that in the the main edit of it it doesn't feature that many whereas the actual episodes of the series are like bang 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 impression 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 and he splits it up quite a bit in this one although we do get paul mccartney advising what to do if your neighbor's having a noisy party at home Yes, a, quite a good a good parody of Dance Tonight. Christmas night is here again and we're all drinking wine. 
The men are all excited and the ladies looking fine. It's getting very hot in here, let's loosen up our clothes. You're a lady, I'm a man, now here's what I propose. Let's all have a sexual Christmas night. Let's all have an erotic holy night. I hope that what I bought you really gets you in the mood. I got you something sexy, cause I'm feeling very rude. Let's all have a sexual Christmas night. Let's all have an erotic holy some three running sketches though both of them featuring our mutual friend Paul Putnam indeed yes the one about a couple being shown around by an estate agent who will not tolerate any questions from or suggestions yeah. from him and repeatedly said did I ask you and the other it's an ingenious thing about a guy going for a job interview where everything he does any indication of whether he's got it or not is a test to see if he'll pass it to check his reaction <laughs> he keeps getting yeah. and losing this job repeatedly yeah it's, it's, it's in the tradition of of the sketch that was like a pre-Python thing. I think it was in How to Irritate People. And then then they redid it for Python, which is the weird job interview sketch where you've got a candidate who doesn't know what's going on. I think it's Tim Brooke Taylor in the original one and then Graham Chapman in the Python one where John Cleese is going, good night, ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding-a, trying to work out what's happening. And you can see Paul Putner's suffering the same fate in this sketch here, which is like, what am I doing? Do I go? Do I stay? Oh, it's I do like that. It's proper old-school sketch material. Well, there is a bit in this that I think is directly Python influenced, which is there's a very long introduction to a panel show where it introduces increasingly ridiculous people, including King Pong, which is basically <laughs> yeah. a man yeah. made of giant ping-pong balls. And then by the time they've been introduce them the show's finished and they have to unintroduce them again I suppose that is very like something out of series one Python in particular I'd say I mean I know Peter is a huge Python fan and I know that he is the sort of person who would think in terms of that's a series one Python sketch so it's a very very clear homage I think yeah it's it's great I like those funny little quick ones where you just get a lot of silly names I'm a big fan of the silly name thing so you get the sort of silly name like King Pong, but you also then get into their uh, French Al Pacino. And also, there, there are lots of other throwaway things, like the advert for the Mactini, which is the world's smallest Apple Mac, where you tap it once for A and 26 times for Z, etc. And then it gets even more complicated with the comma. But in the bumper edition, there's a brilliant advert for Tuna Sandwich Monthly, yeah. where <laughs> month by month, it builds up to complete your very own Tuna Sandwich. I mean, there's some obvious targets which makes it very much of its time, like the the Mac parodies, even though it's not a parody of the actual advert because it was like the Mac PC characters back then, I think. It's still a, you know, a parody of the technology emerging of the time being little teeny tiny things. You've got the, the part works that are always dominating the things, you know, send off and you get one cog of, of a car type thing. So you pick some great obvious targets for the period, but it, you know, it makes it little historical document let's say i think the thing that's interesting with this though that's that stuck out to me that i I think we should mention is this has got a laugh track and none of the episodes of the main series have a laugh track on as well no and it's not quite clear what the reason for that was i mean i'm going to go out on a limb and say as much as i enjoy this it's not as good as the series was the series is almost flawless throughout and a little bit of unevenness in places in this, particularly in the bumper one. I mean, it's still tremendous. That could be the reason why it doesn't even get mentioned alongside the series, I don't think. No, it, it is a bit, it is strange. It, it feels a little bit like they had some leftover sketches and then did some Christmas bits and then glued it all together. You know, I wouldn't lose Brian Butterfield for the world, but, you know, it's nice that he sort of dedicated himself for a while to, to the 
sadly dying art of the sketch show. I don't know, 2008, how many have we had since then that have been really any good, in, certainly for adults anyway? So this is towards the last gasp of people actually making sketch shows and putting them out on something like BBC Two, isn't it? Well, we should give the last word to the gentleman who kind of links the whole show, which is Lord Terence of Wogan, <laughs> in the best impression of him that's ever been, complete with totally realistic hair as well. But what I really love is because it's a kind of extended parody of points of view with him reacting to the letters. It does hone in on, the fact that we could be very forgiving of some things about Terry Wogan because he was he was so wonderful. Yes. That there's an absolutely nail-on-head bit where he receives a letter saying, I've noticed that when Terry receives a letter from a woman, he doesn't take it very seriously. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and so she goes on. I mean, I'm not doing the voice properly, but that was a great impression because it honed in exactly on who he was rather than just picking on the voice. Yeah, and having that idea that when Terry does Eurovision, he always oh, Sounds like he's had a drink and he's been take that a step further and, and just spin <laughs> off the idea from there. That's all we'll say. But Old Tell does have a YT at one point. So, Paul, is there anything Christmassy that you're up to that you want to share with everyone? Well, I'll tell you what. If anyone wants to look up either the Big Beatles Sort Out podcast and or the Head Ballet podcast, they will find plenty of Christmas podcast treats on, on those two things, both featuring me and some featuring you even, Tim. And I should be popping up in all sorts of places as well, because, you know, I think things like podcasts, things like this, ways to get into talk to each other, share a nice bit of a bit of Christmas cheer at this time when we can't really all get together despite everything. So go and look for these fun podcasts. That was the Looks Up Familiar Selection Box. And you heard me, Tim Worthington, talk to Darren McLean, Phil Catterall, Ben Baker, Gareth Hirons, Emma Burnell and Paul Abbott. Thank you to all of my guests this year and everyone we did get a chance to record with this year. I hope that these have in some way brightened up what's not been a great year for most of us. And keep enjoying yourselves. Happy Christmas as far as you can and we'll see you soon. Not On Your Telly by Tim Worthington. From Fish to Fun to Ski Boy, the ultimate guide to the TV that time forgot. Find out more at timworthington.org.